just want to encourage uh, students to make sure they spend time to visit uh, with Mike and uh, Dr. Noble while they're here. They'll be here through the weekend and do some lectures on Monday. Um, but when I was a student, I was a business major. I was not a religion major. I did all horrible in Christian tradition and, and all of those classes. And I remember, uh, no offense to the religion faculty. In fact, it was probably their fault, let's be honest, uh, that I didn't do too well. But um, I, I was really hesitant. But I, after uh, my junior year, I spent the summer in Hong Kong. And uh, while there, I had an experience just the entire summer. I knew I was called to full-time ministry. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if that was pastor. I didn't know if that was missionary. I didn't know if that was... Being a teacher and then just volunteer. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that I was called to make sure my life was committed to the body of Christ, as all of us should, but I sensed it was to a deeper level. I sensed I needed deeper training. And the senior year went by, and at our senior retreat, I was sitting next to the president of the college at that time, Dr. Ken Hill, and told him what I was thinking and said, well, you know, I'd considered seminary, but, you know, I I didn't do well in the classes, and, uh, you know, I'm a business major, and I have a job at Putnam Investments full-time, da-da-da. And he says, well, just, just, just... Just pray about it and just apply. Just apply. I said, I don't think I'll get in. Deadline's passed. He said, well, I'll make a phone call. Uh, Well, he made a phone call. The next day, I was admitted into Nazarene Theological Seminary. Um, And uh, the first year was hard. In fact, the first semester, I I basically almost failed out. And uh, a little embarrassed to say that, but I just want to be honest with you at all times. I literally almost failed out. Dr. Noble gave me a D. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Took the class again, got an A. Anyway, so... uh, I say that it was very hard, and I had to accept the fact that I had to work twice as hard as those that were religion majors that went to seminary because of that. So I had to work twice as hard, and that was okay. And it really helps, uh, guys, if you start dating an editor. Uh, that really helped, uh, as Edie helped me through that process. And uh, it was challenging, and I worked twice, but, but I ended up doing it and doing well, and ended up finishing very strong and, and went on for further studies. I share that story with you. Don't think that seminary education is just for religion majors. Uh, I think there are many in this room that are called to ministry that are already in the ministry track and doing all of that. Uh, But I think there are more than that that are also called. So I really just want to encourage you to uh, meet with Mike and Dr. Dr. Noble while you're here. Uh, Dr. Thomas Noble received his Bachelor of Divinity and Doctorate of Philosophy from the University of Edinburgh. He went on to be a lecturer in Christian theology at Nazarene Theological College in the UK for 20 years until he moved to Kansas City and became professor of theology at Nazarene Theological Seminary in 1996. Dr. Noble has written numerous books and articles about Nazarene holiness theology and the Holy Trinity. His most recent book, which has been long awaited, I've been looking forward to for quite some time, Holy Trinity, Holy People, The Theology of Christian Perfecting. Uh, He has been married to Elaine for many years. They have four daughters, four sons-in-laws, and seven grandchildren. To date. Seven to date. So there might be more on the way. Who knows? If God blesses. So uh, there will also be lectures. They'll be in several classes. But then on Monday uh, afternoon at 345 here in the sanctuary, it's because we want to capture it on video. We're having the lecture in here. Uh, Dr. Noble will be lecturing on the authority of the Bible in the church. That's at 345. Then there will be an evening lecture at 630, Christian Holiness and the Holy Trinity. That will also be here in the sanctuary. Uh, Chapel credit opportunities available if you want to attend those. um, And I'd encourage you to do so. One uh, final uh, story uh, of how I got to know Dr. Noble. Didn't prep him in this, but uh, now that we're such good friends and I've forgiven him for giving me that D in Systematic Theology 1, which I ended up getting an A in, if I didn't mention that already, uh, second time around, um, I went as a student representative when we went, to, we went to Treveca one weekend. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember the time we traveled to Treveca together? You do remember that. Oh, well, that's good to know. So we went to Treveca, and uh, 
we were there in classes and meeting with students, and uh, the enrollment group the following year said that was the biggest group we ever got out of Trevecca, so we must be a very good team. Uh, and as we were on the plane, he's reading some deep, profound theological book, and it was probably in German or some other language. I'm reading Money, Sex, and Power by Deion Sanders on the same flight. That was the book that I was reading. Both theologically sound, I'm sure. (laughs) Deion Sanders' book was about how he came to faith in Christ, and that is a theological book, in my opinion. Just a little different than probably the one you were reading. Uh, But we had a a good time. And on the trip back, I was really struggling. It was my first or second year at the seminary. And I was struggling with some because a lot of students and others were were really critical of this class. And I couldn't understand why people were so critical of this evangelism class and the way it was being taught and all of this, this, the methods that were being taught. And I was still processing all this. Well, why are we so critical of this class and this professor and the way things are being taught? And um, so I felt comfortable enough to ask Dr. Help me understand you know, help me understand this. And we had a great, you probably don't remember this, but we had a great conversation. And, and I'll never forget the end of that conversation. And he said, um, how much you really admired that professor because of his passion for people to come to know Christ. And he said, the church must never, ever lose that passion for people to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. So I share that story with you. You know that, yes, he's a very well-respected theologian, father, grandfather, for a wonderful husband, very educated, but he also has his passion. Uh, for you, and for me, and for the church and the world to come to know Jesus Christ. So will you please welcome Dr. Thomas Miller. Well, thank you. It's really great to be here in ENC at the start of uh, your new academic year and to be with Chaplain McPherson again. I wasn't going to tell this, But when I knew I was coming, I uh, went to find out when he'd been my student, and I looked up my Mark's book, and I saw that D. (laughs) But you know something? We've all failed exams. (laughs) We've all plowed here or there. I have too. But it's perseverance that can take us through. And you know, I'm excited about the fact that you're here. Some of you have come back again for a new year at ENC. You're meeting old friends. Some of you are here for the first time, and you're wondering just what does the future hold. You know, as I've been walking around this campus and looking at some of the names and the buildings, I remember some of these people. I'm staying in the Young Apartments. Dr. Samuel Young was president here. He went on to become uh, general superintendent. But he started off as a little boy in Glasgow, in Scotland, in the same church where my grandparents were. And that was where he was converted, and that was where he joined the Church of the Nazarene. He came across to Cleveland, Ohio. He became a businessman. He became president of this college. He went on to become a general superintendent, and he did great things for the Church of the Nazarene. He had a great financial brain. He helped to put us in a sound financial footing. And as a very small boy, I emphasize the very, I remember him coming to take district assembly, and he would come to my parents' house for a meal when he came. So what may God do? with someone here today. Or I think of Dr. Ed Mann, whose name is in another building. Now, I remember him when I started teaching at the college in Manchester, British Isles Nazarene College, it used to be called. Dr. Ed Mann was the executive secretary of the Department of Education. That was the title we used to give them in Kansas City. And he arranged for a new financial basis for that college. 
And that college went on to become the first Nazarene college anywhere in the world where people could take PhD degrees in theology. So Dr. Ed Mann was used in all kinds of ways. But you know, all of these great names up on these buildings around us, they all started off where you are. They all started off as freshers at college. Can you think of that? But God laid his hand on some of these people. And my prayer is that God will lay his hand on someone, more than one, here today. And not only to great positions of leadership, but to faithful pastoral ministry, to faithful work in the community, to faithful work in the business and the office. My goodness, how we need Christians in every part of our national life today. So I'm praying that God will speak to you while you're here, and we can believe that that is going to be so. Well, now, I want to turn uh, with you to the Word of God and uh, read a few verses from uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, uh, reading at verse 60. Let's stand in honor of the Word of God. John 6, verse 60. Many of Jesus' disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first those who were that did not believe and who it was that should betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Risen Lord Jesus, present among us today by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word now, we pray. Amen. Some dates stand out in human history. 1776, the Boston Tea Party. Well, the less I say about that as a Brit, the better. <laughs> 1789, the French Revolution. 1914, the beginning of the First World War, 100 years ago next year. 1945, the end of the Second World War, the beginning of the Cold War. 1989, the year that saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, the breaking down of the Berlin Wall, leading to the union of the two Germanies, liberal democracies established in Eastern Europe in place of the Soviet Empire. People were really carried away with 1989. You might well have repeated the words of Wordsworth about the French Revolution. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive and to be young was very heaven. 
Francis Fukuyama wrote his article, later to become a book, The End of History. In contrast to Marx, he argued that the final destiny of human history was liberal democracy. And while there might yet still be bumps along the road and troubles and maybe even centuries, this, he thought, guaranteed that eventually democracy would triumph throughout the world. So in 1989, the world saw something we thought we would never see. Not perhaps the final end of Marxism, but we believed the beginning of the end. Lord, asked Peter, to whom shall we go? Well, during the century and a half before 1989, many oppressed people in Europe and China and Latin America went to Karl Marx. Here was another gospel. Here was an alternative gospel for the poor, another prophet, another savior. And there was, in fact, much that was commendable and admirable about Karl Marx. He was a great idealist. Born into a Jewish family, which became Christian, he was baptized into the Christian faith, brought up as a Christian. As a young man, he wrote an essay on this very Gospel of John that we read from. I've been taken to the very room in Chetham's library in Manchester, where he sat and wrote his great work, Das Kapital. Now, by that time, Marx was an atheist. Manchester was at the heart of the Industrial Revolution. The poor were being oppressed. In 1847, he joined the Communist League, and along with his friend Friedrich Engels, they published their famous Communist Manifesto. But even though Marx had come to dismiss religion, you remember, as the opium of the people, he still retained, I would argue, from his Christian heritage, a concern for the poor. But he made communism into more than just a political creed. He made it into an ideology, a substitute religion. He saw all of human history, you may remember, as a class struggle. He prophesied that the workers of the world, the proletariat, would eventually unite, rise in revolution against the middle classes, the bourgeoisie, the property owners. And then for a time, he said, the state will own all the means of production, all the property, all the mines, all the factories. But he dreamt that eventually... The state would wither away and humankind would enter a golden age, the classless society, a kind of heaven on earth. But of course, Marx's dream turned out to be a myth. He made human beings into economic machines and even his economic theories failed miserably in the Soviet Union. In China, where they eventually had to turn to a capitalist system. And wherever they've been tried. And by the collapse of the Marxist Soviet empire in 1989, millions were living in poverty. Wherever Marx's gospel had been put into practice, millions had died in labor camps and gulags and purges. 20 million under Stalin in the name of Marxist idealism. And his creed is now being abandoned after decades of Marxism led not to heaven and earth, but to what at times was little short of hell. Lord, to whom shall we go? Others have turned to the gospel of science. When I was a student at grammar school, we had a teacher we called Commie Joe. 
And the reason for his nickname was that he had embraced, apparently, both the Gospel of Marx and the Gospel of Science. He used to preach regularly in class that when our country gave the same priority to science as communist Russia did, then we'd see real progress. Poor Commie Joe. I don't know whether he lived to see the collapse of his ideal communist empire. Now, when I speak of the gospel of science as an alternative gospel, do not think that I am attacking science itself. Quite the contrary. Only a fool would attack science. Science has performed miracles. It has alleviated poverty. It has saved lives. It has lifted burdens of toil from millions. So I am certainly not attacking science. But what I'm talking about is those people who, like Richard Dawkins and Hitchens in our day, who for their own purposes have turned science into a substitute religion, an alternative gospel. It is what we sometimes call scientism. It began in the Victorian era. 1864, a group of scientists in London formed what they called the X Club, led by Thomas Henry Huxley. You may never have heard of them, but they have had an immense influence on popular opinion right down to the present day. Huxley, like Marx, was a great idealist. And the professed aim of his X Club was to attack the church in the name of science. And they deliberately spread the idea that religion and science had always been in conflict and that the church was the enemy of scientific advance. And they made a great deal of isolated incidents like Galileo and Huxley's own debate with Bishop Wilberforce in Oxford. And their propaganda appeared in two books published by Americans, J.W. Draper, A.D. White, who claimed that Christianity was the enemy of the development of science. But historians today dismiss their books as completely unfounded propaganda. As Henry Ford said, bunk. <laughs> but sadly, they had a widespread influence in popular opinion. And even more sadly, many simple Bible-believing Christians swallowed their propaganda and still think that science is at war with the Christian faith. That is just so much nonsense. Some of the greatest scientists of the modern era have been Christians. Bacon, Newton, Boyle, Clark Maxwell, Kelvin, and down to our own day, Polkinghorne and Francis Collins. And historians of science today argue that modern science arose out of Christian convictions about the world, Christian theology. Science didn't take off in ancient Greece. It was smothered. It didn't take off in ancient China or ancient India. All advanced civilizations, it took off in Protestant Europe. And the biggest group of the scientists who formed London's famous Royal Society in the 17th century were Puritans. It is out of Christian theology that the convictions arose which led to the development of science. But Huxley... And his secular humanists down to this day, Dawkins and Hitchens and all the rest of them, have tried to present science as an alternative religion, another savior, another gospel. And sadly, this humanist propaganda reduces humanity to the level of an animal or even a machine. And they, not Darwin, were the ones who coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest, which was to contribute to racism 
in the early 20th century, a poisonous stream which fed into the cesspit of Nazi ideology. Lord, asked Peter, to whom shall we go? The gospel of communism, the gospel of scientism. We could go on and on. So many gospels, so many creeds, so many idealisms. And they're not all bad. Some of them are very worthy. The gospel of liberalism. Defend freedom of speech and human rights. The gospel of capitalism. Well, despite its flaws and the harm it has done, no other economic system has ever produced such wealth for the people of the world. The gospel of egalitarianism. Equality for all. Promote feminism and condemn racism. The gospel of patriotism. The gospel of conservation, save the rainforests and the ice caps and the ozone layer. The gospel of education and social services. So many gospels, so many causes, so much idealism. And Christians ought to be committed to some of these. But not one of them is worthy of our ultimate commitment or our ultimate devotion. And the reason is quite simple. Not one of them has ultimate truth. And not one of them can give us ultimate hope. To whom shall we go? Asked Peter. You. And the implication is, you alone have the words of eternal life. What is meant by eternal life? Well, it's one of the great themes, of course, of the Gospel of John. John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 4.14, Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become a spring of water welling up to Eternal life. John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. John 11.29. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, perhaps the best way to understand this theme of life is in contrast to its opposite, death. Death means the end of life. It means separation, the end of loving relationships. Death means the empty chair. Death means decay, corruption, darkness, nothingness. And though we may try to hide and take refuge in the thought that we are young and healthy, it still casts its shadow over our lives now. If death is the end, then the only way to live is in despair. Despair means the end of hope now. And probably no one has expressed this better than the words that Shakespeare put into the mouths of Macbeth. You may remember them. Tomorrow and tomorrow 
and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day till the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And the first point is that none of these other gospels has anything to say about my death. Karl Marx thought he was giving hope to humanity. It would eventually enter the classless society. And not only was that dream a false hope, but he gave no hope to the individual at all. Huxley's religion of scientism promised peace and prosperity for future generations. But for the individual, no hope. We shall all be snuffed out. And if you have no ultimate hope, you have no hope at all. And your life, as Shakespeare saw, is an absurdity, a tale told by an idiot. And even though we may be young and healthy, that affects, in the end, it determines our whole view of life. Some years ago, when our children were very little, we were driving down a certain road near where we lived in the city of Manchester in the UK. And as we drove down that road, a little voice said from the back of the car, Oh, this is the road to Aunt Anne's house. Now, my sister Anne lived miles and miles away, and we weren't going there that day, but we had been there at Christmas time. And in that little mind, that road had become associated with all the joys and delights of Aunt Anne's house. The light, the warmth, the party games, the presents, the mountains of delicious Christmas food, all the joys and delights of heaven. And that long, weary road in the back of the car, before the days of videos, by the way, had been enlightened with hope. The destination cast its light on everything. And that is true of our lives. The hope that Jesus gives is not just for those facing near death. It is hope that gives meaning to the whole journey of life and transforms it with its glow. Choosing a career. Marriage. Setting up a home. Bringing up a family. Bearing the responsibilities of work. Facing illness and bereavement. All of these are transformed. Given new significance. For the Christian who has come to Christ. And found in him light and life. Goes to all of these with a new courage. With a new zest. And with a deep joy. Which enables him or her to live life to the full. But there's something else. It's not just a matter for the individual. It is not, not, not just a matter of going to heaven when we die. In 2005, Bishop Tom Wright, one of the stellar New Testament scholars in the world today, came to the Nazarene College in Manchester and to give the Didsbury Lectures. And his title was an intriguing one. Life 
after life, after death. Later published in his book, Surprised by Hope, his point was, of course, that Christian faith is not just about going to heaven when we die. Going to heaven, or at least going to be with the Lord, is the hope of the Christian. That is life after death. But according to the Christian gospel, that is not the end. There is life after life after death. In other words, there is the glorious hope of the resurrection. And that is not just a hope for you and me as individuals. That is a hope for the whole cosmos, that God the creator will recreate the new heavens and the new earth. The Christian hope is not that we will spend eternity floating around in an ethereal heaven. The Christian hope is in the recreation of creation. And it is hope not just for the individual, but for the new heavens and the new earth. It is cosmic. And it is hope not just for the individual. It is hope at last for human society. That is what the new Jerusalem coming to earth is all about. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. And the vain hopes and idealism of Marxism and scientism and so many other gospels that humanity may one day live in peace and harmony and freedom will not be achieved by human idealism or human programs or human policies, but it will be achieved in the coming of the kingdom of God. And it is coming to earth. And because of that hope, Christians work now to relieve poverty and to fight injustice. No other gospel, no other cause can take first place in your heart or in mine. No other savior. For he alone is the one who died for us and who is risen and who will come again. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We rejoice this morning that we come not to a dead Savior, but to a risen one. We thank you that you are the one who has been exalted to a place of power over the whole universe. And you have sent your Holy Spirit among us in order that through the presence of the Spirit, you may be present with us here. Or gathered here, we are your people. Thank you for your work in each of our lives. Thank you for bringing us to this point in this day. Lord, help us as we seek guidance, as we commit ourselves to different good causes and live not for ourselves but for others. But, O oh Lord Jesus Christ, may each of us bow before you this day, sort out where our first loyalty lies. Christ, Christ alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. Hear our prayer and answer it according to your will. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Stan.
Thank you for that wonderful word. Let us respond by closing and singing in the doxology together again. Praise God from...